So verse 14 begins with, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Paul is so overwhelmed with the incredible provision of God's love towards us in that both Jews and Gentiles can finally be reconciled to God. Paul falls to his knees. Now what a shock that must have been for the guard who was chained to Paul at that time. We see from Scripture that the customary position of prayer is to be stood upright. More often than not, we see examples of that. So the fact that Paul takes a position of bowing on his knees really shows evidence of the overwhelming gratitude that Paul felt because of God's grace. Paul goes on to say that he kneels before the Father for whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And it seems here that Paul is referring to the fact that God's family of adopted children is one, but in two locations. All who are called by God are his church, and we have the church militant here on earth, and we have the church triumphant in heaven. Although we're separated by death, both are still two parts of one great family of God. And thanks be to God, one day of his choosing, we will be together forever and the Lord, with the Lord and his saints who have gone on before. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, you, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. In verse 16, we find that Paul is praying for the spiritual growth of Christians in Ephesus. Notice who Paul attributes spiritual growth to. It's God. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. The initiator of spiritual growth in the life of the believer is God. It's not us. It's not us. It's God. It's so easy, though, to forget that God's love is the only quality that can truly be the initiator of our spiritual growth. If we're not too careful and we fail to understand that growth in the love of God, we can only, well, we tend to slowly move away from spiritual worship of Jesus into a dangerous ground of moralism. Just like Christian Pilgrim in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this work. Christian Pilgrim takes a stop at a village of morality instead of moving towards and onwards with his journey in the love of Jesus. The village of morality in Pilgrim's Progress represents the many people who seek to avoid the appearance of evil and practice good apart from any real connection in Jesus. They hope that by trying to be good and doing good things, that all will turn out all right in the end. They keep the law outwardly in the eyes of men and can be seen, can say along with the rich young ruler of Mark chapter 10, 20, teacher, all of these rules and regulations I've kept from when I was a youth. Sadly, the citizens of the village of morality 
cling to an outward keeping of the law, a works righteousness that continually seeks to outweigh any bad with good. Essentially, the message from morality is, be a good person and all will be well. Simply try to get along with people, act with decency and benevolence towards your fellow man, and all will be fine. Now, we must guard ourselves against this. We must guard ourselves against this because morality tells us that we can solve our own problems, that striving to be good in our own strength can remove our guilt and sin and bring us spiritual growth. The truth, however, friends, is that only the cross and the shed blood of Christ can bring peace and atonement for sin, and only the love of Christ, only the love of Christ can motivate us in spiritual growth, obedience, and nothing else will do. Now, while in preparation for this sermon, I reread some of John Stott's work on Ephesians, and I would certainly recommend them to us all. In it, he likens the Apostle Paul's prayer petition in Ephesians chapter 3 to a staircase. And with each step of the staircase, Paul climbs higher and higher in his aspirations for the reader. Paul's prayer staircase has four steps whose key words are strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. Notice first he prays that we may be strengthened by the indwelling Christ through the Spirit. Secondly, that they may be rooted and grounded in love. And thirdly, that they may know Christ's love in all of its dimensions, although it is beyond knowledge. And fourthly, that they may be filled right up to the very fullness of God. Now, we might be confused by Paul's first petition there. Isn't Paul praying to Christians? We already know that Christians have the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in every believer. Why did Paul ask that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Was Christ not already with them? Well, yes, of course, Christ was with them. When we accept Christ, as we've discovered already, when we accept Christ, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, as Charles Hodge comments, and I just love how God's Spirit moves within our church. Nick and I haven't spoken about the sermon today, but Nick, Nick talked through the power of the Holy Spirit and mention things that are, apply here today as well. And I just thank you, brother, that, for listening to God as, you, as you're sharing. The indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. The inward spirit and the strengthening of the Holy Spirit is a thing of degrees. The Ephesians had the Holy Spirit living within them, but here Paul is praying that they are strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Nicky Gumbel of Alpha and Holy Brain of Trinity and Brompton, you may know, um, has an excellent illustration of the power of the Holy Spirit, which, if you'll permit me, I'll share with you. And Phil, I think you'll appreciate this. It involves a, a central heating boiler. The pilot light is on all the time. If not, call Phil. The pilot light is on. But the boiler isn't giving out heat and power with just the pilot light on. But when the boiler is fired up 
and active and doing what it's actually designed to do. Suddenly it's filled with power and it springs to life. But sadly, too many times as Christians, we settle for only the pilot light of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, they literally fire on all cylinders. And when we look at that, and we look, when we look at individuals who are in that, in that situation, they, we see a difference. We see a, it manifest in the way they live their lives, the way they glorify God and honor God, when they are literally no longer a pilot-like Christian, but firing as the boiler was intended to. And God wants our lives to be full of the Holy Spirit. God wants our lives to be lives that can be a joy and a glory to him. So how do we get this strength? How do we get this strength to live as God wants us to? Well, the Holy Spirit. We get this power and strength from the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Paul's ministry. The same Holy Spirit that equips us to serve in our communities. It's available to all of us through prayer. Rather, he is available to all of us through prayer. And if we want the power that the Holy Spirit provides and to live for Jesus, we need to make prayer a greater priority. When we pray, we will experience God's renovating power within us. Now, in this passage, Paul here is praying that the Ephesians, if you will, will move from being pilot-like Christians to being Christians that are filled with power, to function as God wills, to live lives of faith and glory to God. Now, the result of such infilling of God's Spirit in our lives is that Christ will dwell in our hearts. Now, the Greek word used here is katekio, which means to settle down and to inhabit. It refers to a permanent as opposed to a temporary residence. Christ abiding in the believer's heart here in verse 17 is seen by Paul as being a permanent arrangement. It's not meant to be a temporary one. Now notice in this chapter here that Paul uses two very, very beautiful metaphors, one from the world of botany and one from the world of construction or architecture. He uses the terms rooted and grounded. Rooted and grounded. This double emphasis really serves to highlight just how connected Paul wants us to be in the love that only God can provide. We are to be rooted in the love of God. Rooted in the love of God. Love is the soil in which we need to grow. We need to be daily drawing up from the love that God offers us and being nourished by it. Likewise, the love of God needs to be our foundation. Everything that we do has to be built on this love because it's the only foundation that will last for eternity, the love of Christ. Deep roots, firm foundations. Deep roots and firm foundations in God's love are the only true way for us to be able to grow in Christ the only way for us to grow as Christ intends, and the only way for us to be able to live with each other 
and in our communities as God wants. If we, if we want to grow spiritually, we must continually contemplate God's deep love for us. As we grow in that understanding, our lives will begin to reflect the moral character of God. Falling in love with Christ will drive our desire to want to honor Christ with our lives, to evangelize, to be a witness in our communities, to honor Christ in the relationships that we have and in every aspect of our lives. As Christians, we are a new humanity. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ who love God our Father and love each other. Or at least, we should do. We need the power of Christ indwelling in us to enable us to love each other the way that Christ loved us. And that is something only the Holy Spirit can provide to us if we are prepared to receive him in. Verse 18. Many may have strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 18 is a message for us as individuals and for us as a church. Paul wants for us, the body of Christ, to comprehend together the magnitude of God's love for us. When we come together rooted and grounded in love and together comprehend what Jesus has done for us, it will enrich us in a way that we never knew possible. But the question of the hour is how big is the love of Christ? How big is the love of Christ? Notice what Paul wants us to understand here. He says, comprehend with all the saints. That's us collectively together. Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul wants us to comprehend together the multidimensional nature of Christ's love for us. Now, this is such wonderful news. The word comprehend comes from the Greek word katalanvano, which means to lay hold of so as to make one's own. And know, in this passage, comes from the Greek word yinosko, which means to know especially through personal experience. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, these two words combined together, refer, refer to more than just understanding Christ's love intellectually. They refer to us knowing his love experientially. How big is the love of Christ? Well, Paul refers to four dimensions, width, length, depth, and height. And all of this can be attributed and seen in the love of Christ a love that passes all knowledge. Width. Jesus' love is wide enough to include all people, irrespective of a person's country, culture, or color. Christ's love is not partial towards any particular ethnicity or people. He died for all people, including you and me. Length. Length. 
Christ's love reached back to eternity past when he was planning his relationships with you and with me before he created the universe. His love also reaches to eternity future when we will be with him in heaven, free from sin, free from shame, free from Satan. Friends, it doesn't matter how far you have gone from him. Jesus' love is so long enough to reach you and to welcome you and to come, to come home with him. Depth. The love of Christ is deep enough to rescue us from the depths of sin and shame and save us from eternal punishment, which we deserve. In our former lives, you may have considered yourself like the Apostle Paul to be chief of sinners. But this does not change Jesus' love for you. Romans 5 tells us that Christ died for us when we were still his ungodly enemies. And if Christ gave his best when we were at our worst, how much more will he give us now that we are God's beloved children? Height. Jesus' love is high enough to sit us next to him in the heavenly places, far above all of his opponents, including the devil and his followers. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that before we were saved, we were under the power and authority of Satan and this world system. But now we are seated next to Jesus in a position of power and victory far above all the enemies of God. Therefore, we can live victoriously for Jesus because of him. We are winners, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. Romans chapter 8, 7, 37 tells us we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. Jesus' love leads us to victory. Jesus' love leads us to victory so that God can be glorified forever and ever. Friends, we may know of Jesus' love intellectually, but do we have a heart experiential knowledge that will fill our souls? So to recap, the love of Christ has breadth enough to include you and me and people of all nations. The love of Christ has length enough to last for all eternity. The love of Christ has depth enough to reach me and the lost, wretched sinner. And the love of Christ has height enough to exalt us with Christ in heaven. So I ask you again, how big is the love of Christ? Friends, it's as big as the cross. It's as big as the cross. Verse 19, the second part. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christ wants us to grow in him as he abides in us to the point that we are filled with all the fullness of God. Now the process in this world by which God makes us into the people he wants is the process of sanctification. And it is this process by which God changes us and makes us into the people he wants. We grow in him and are changed. But Paul here, I believe, is pointing to a time beyond the work here on earth. It seems to me that such a prayer to be filled with all the fullness of God 
must be looking forward to our final state of perfection in heaven when together as his bride we enter the completeness of God's purpose for us and are filled to capacity, filled up to the fullness of God which human beings are capable of receiving without ceasing to be human. Now Paul ends his prayer with what has become for us a doxology, an expression of praise to God. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I think you would agree, Alan, that that's a wow moment. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Just pause for a moment and contemplate this. God is desperately wanting to reveal the power and glory that he has in our lives. He's able to do far more than we can imagine through the agency of his Holy Spirit that he invites us to have in our hearts and in our lives. Wow, what a privilege for us. What a privilege for us to know that God loves us to this extent. If we, if we look carefully um, in this doxology, we will see three, three things emerge from this doxology. The first we see is the sovereignty of God. God in his sovereignty may choose to do whatever he wills. Our limited thinking, we kind of want God to act in a certain way, but because God is sovereign and God is limitless, he acts in whatever way he knows he needs to and wants to. What he can do for us far exceeds anything we can dream or imagine, much less ask for. God's sovereignty means that our prayers can be answered far beyond even what we ask. Second, we see the omnipotence of God. God manifests his great power in a range of ways, and most obviously, perhaps, he manifested it when he created the world and the universe. But he also used his omnipotence to bring Jews and Gentiles together and to form them into the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Us. We can be the dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. And finally, we see the glory of God. The power God has has a purpose, and that is namely to bring glory to him. Everything that God has done, everything that God will ever do, is an echo of his glory forever. And as we see and acknowledge God's work in the world and in the church, in our hearts and in our lives, and we respond in praise and worship, giving glory to God, may this be our delight, both now 
and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe at you for your greatness and your glory. We are in awe of you, Lord, because you loved us from the foundations of the earth. You wanted us to have a relationship with you. You gave us your son to be the perfect sacrifice to reconcile us with you. And you give us, Lord, your Holy Spirit so that we can live for you. Father, we simply ask and pray that you, your patience with us will never run thin. Father, we recognize we need your Holy Spirit living fully within our hearts and minds. So, Father, we simply ask and pray that you will take away every obstacle, every hindrance to that, that we will be filled to capacity, that our lives will reflect your love, that we'll be grounded and rooted in your love, and that people will see us wherever we may go and recognize there is something different about us. We pray, Lord, for your outpouring of your Holy Spirit on this church. We pray, Lord, so that we will have love one towards another, that there will be genuine fellowship and love, and that the world will see this and want to taste and see that you are good. Father, equip us, Lord, with all that we need to serve you, we pray. In your holy, precious name. Amen.